You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 87. Hello, listeners. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, your guide into realms of fantasy and wonder. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. So, let's get started with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you the first part of a new Metamore City Christmas story, A Wizard Family Solstice. I wrote this story in the last few weeks of 2016, and did a live reading of it on Facebook on December 23rd through 25th. Because of this, I know a few dozen of you have already heard this story, but most of you haven't, and I'm proud to bring it to the podcast now. This will be an all-new, studio-quality recording of the story, so even if you heard that first rough performance on Facebook Live, I hope you'll enjoy hearing the more polished version here. This story takes place after the story Make Believe, by Brian Watson, as well as the novel Things Unseen. There are some spoilers for those two stories, so if you haven't caught up with them, you might want to do so before listening to this story. Make-Believe can be found in Urban Legends, the first Metamore City story collection, and also in special episodes 3 and 4 of the Metamore City podcast. I'll put links in the show notes. And now, without further ado, here's the story. A Wizard Family Solstice A Holiday Tale of Metamore City By Chris Lester Part 1 The Gift Shop of the Magi John Tunstall awoke, as usual, at 5 a.m. He turned off his alarm clock, stumbled muzzily to the bathroom, and attended to the morning necessities, still half asleep. He pulled on a fresh black t-shirt, the text on the front read, Let me drop everything and work on your problem, and a slightly less fresh pair of jeans, then wandered to the kitchen. After making coffee and snatching a quick breakfast of leftovers from the fridge, he headed downstairs. He crossed through the warehouse, into the shop, down an aisle lined with knickknacks and another filled with candles, and finally to the front door. He flipped around the sign in the window, unlocked the deadbolt, and stepped outside to see where the door led to today. He exited onto one of the middle levels in a vertical shopping mall. At least a dozen stories stretched above and below him, connected by a series of zigzagging escalators and at least four glass-enclosed lifts. The ceilings of every level were festooned with twinkling holiday lights, and oversized decorations resembling ornaments and snowflakes hung in the spaces between the escalators. Most of the shops weren't open yet, so the holiday shopping crowds had not yet arrived, but John saw a few elderly folks slowly circling the building, taking their climate-controlled morning walk. John turned around and looked at his own storefront. The sign read, Holiday Treasures, in a kitschy font that looked like the letters were made of candy canes, Solstice-themed decorations and gift ideas filled the window displays, almost completely blocking any view of the shop's interior. 
Nowhere was the shop's actual name in evidence. Spells for You had always been a terrible name for a store, in John's opinion, but in the last eight months it had gone from being merely inadvisable to actually dangerous. Which is what happens, John thought sourly, when you pick a fight with the Imperial Minister of Intelligence. Going back inside, John found a plug attached to the set of holiday lights in the window displays. He dutifully plugged them in, then went behind the counter to start up the register and straighten up the jewelry cases. About half an hour later, his boss wandered down from the apartment, a mug of tea in one hand and a buttered muffin in the other. As usual, the old man wore a dark blue robe covered with bright yellow cartoon stars and crescent moons, with a matching cone-shaped hat and a pair of fuzzy slippers. His frizzy white hair and beard were both freshly washed and combed, which made him look slightly less disreputable than usual. His pale blue eyes scanned the jewelry cases as he passed them, his shopkeeper's intuition weighing the placement and presentation of each bauble. He glanced briefly up at John, who stood head and shoulders above him, and made a sound of grudging approval. "'You're getting better at that,' he said, in the thick Southmoran brogue John was never entirely sure was genuine. "'I'm glad to see you're applying that brain of yours to more than your magic lessons.' John raised his eyebrows. A compliment, first thing in the morning, he thought. Either the holiday spirit's gotten to him, or the old man wants something. John was pretty sure he knew the answer. People who worked in retail didn't get holiday cheer. Holiday murder fantasies, possibly, but not cheer. Thanks, John said, warily. Can I get you anything, boss? Ten minutes of peace and quiet will do nicely, Master Tunstall. The shopkeeper settled himself into the chair behind the register with a grunt of effort. He sipped his tea and looked out at the window display, his expression clouded. John had been working with his master long enough to know that look. He's seen something that's bothering him. The old man was one of the best seers on the planet— and he lived his life amidst a perpetual whirlwind of prophetic insights. What most people didn't know about him, not even the regular customers who knew him best, was that he had almost no control over these visions. He lived in a vortex of warring timelines, where past, present, and possible futures intermingled and overlapped, as if a series of video feeds had been spliced together by a music video director on psychedelics. On the one hand, this made him precognizant, to a degree that astonished even other wizards. On the other hand, the disorientation it created could be debilitating. This was the reason the old man almost never left his shop. By staying in a confined, familiar space that was under his complete control, he could limit the number and variety of the encounters he would face in a day. This kept the barrage of potential futures down to a manageable number. Most days in the shop were not too different from most others, so within these constraints he could almost function like a normal human being. Unless, of course, something especially unusual and disruptive was about to happen. John left the master to his thoughts and went to see to other duties around the shop. He restocked the shelves where they were depleted, filled the end caps with seasonally appropriate holiday dreck, and cleaned up a spill in aisle seven, where a customer had opened a vial of pixie dust. After twenty minutes, he came back to the register. 
Want me to look after the shop today? He asked. You look like you could use a day off. The master's eyes shot daggers at him. He took a breath to volley some sharp-tongued reply, then stopped, closed his eyes, and let out a long sigh. I, he said at last, I, perhaps that's best. He pushed himself out of the chair and went to the register, where he pulled out a quartz crystal and set it on the counter. It was about five centimeters tall, mounted on a broad, round base, and had no cracks, cloudy spots, or inclusions. The old man placed his hand over the crystal and muttered a few words under his breath, and a soft yellow glow began to emanate from it. If anyone asks for me personally, have a look there, he said. If it's green, I'll see him. If it's yellow, I'm not available. John nodded. Yes, sir. Hope you feel better. The old man grunted and left without another word. The other shops in the mall mostly opened at nine, and within an hour John was tending to a steady stream of customers. Most of them were casual holiday shoppers, looking for nothing more magical than a singing reindeer statue. About one patron in ten purchased something more powerful, an enchanted costume, or a protection amulet, or the old man's specialty, a transformation potion. For these items, John was careful to show the customer the directions and walk them through all the steps, precautions, and provisos. Magic did have rules, but these rules often seemed random and nonsensical to those who weren't trained in the underlying theory, and spells for use magic items, for reasons even John didn't fully understand, were more random than most. All he could do was give the customer the directions and stress the importance of following them. Whatever happened to them after that was on their own head. And then there were the handful of serious practitioners who came to the shop. These folks knew exactly who they were dealing with, and they greeted John with a wink and a nod as they stepped inside. Word had gotten out to the wizard community about the intelligence ministry's little witch hunt, and they were overwhelmingly on the old man's side. John wasn't sure how they found the shop, since the entrance moved to a new location every night, but he noticed that these men and women were taking home significantly more supplies than usual. Many of the items they bought now were rare and expensive, things that the master could sell at markups of five to ten times the wholesale price. At checkout, they shook John's hand and wished him good luck. The stream of customers tapered off around midday, so John put up the will return sign and went out to get lunch. The mall had a food court, of course. John got in the line for Borsa Hut and, with nothing else to do, started people-watching. It didn't take long to find some worthy viewing. A striking Sathmoran woman sat near the center of the food court, sipping idly at a hot beverage of some kind. She was older than John, maybe in her mid-thirties, but that suited his taste just fine. She sat half-reclined on the bench, with her feet propped up on the opposite chair, exposing long legs and calf-high leather boots. She wore skin-tight jeans and a thin, fuzzy sweater of sage-green, which made a lovely contrast to her tumble of copper-red curls. The woman noticed John watching her. She smiled. John smiled back and gave her a respectful nod. She raised her eyebrows, still smiling, and took another sip of her drink. John continued scanning the room, not wanting to seem creepy. 
His attention kept drifting back to the redhead, though, and after a while he found himself observing her out of the corner of his eye. As the line passed closer to where she sat, John felt a sudden, familiar tingle in his arcane senses, the unmistakable sensation of one mage's aura brushing up against another's. His eyes went wide. With a moment's concentration, he opened up his wizard sight, then looked back in the woman's direction. A shimmering trail of emerald green light snaked across the floor between them, ending at the fingertips of one elegant hand. She winked at him, then deliberately looked away. The trail of mana drew back into her aura, which glowed with the same emerald light. John was floored. What the redhead had done was the magical equivalent of tracing her hand down his back in a crowded dance club. Not quite a personal violation, but still shockingly forward. He looked away, blushing, and wondered what he should do. By the time he got to the front of the line, John had forgotten what he planned to order in the first place. Flustered, he picked the first combo meal on the menu, put down some cash, and sat down at a nearby booth to wait for his order to come up. It wasn't long before he felt that same brush against his aura again. He whipped his head around in the direction of the touch, saw a ribbon of mana weaving around behind his back, spun in the other direction, and looked straight up into the dazzling green eyes of the woman. John's mouth opened, but no sound came out. All his charm, all his usual composure in dealing with the opposite sex, failed him utterly. The woman placed one hand flat on the table before him and leaned casually into his space, looking down on him with an amused smile. It made John feel both very small and terribly aroused. Her aura pressed closely against his own, and the contact was like a sizzle of electricity. Not only was she a practitioner, she was a strong one. Maybe as strong as the old man. Mind if I join you, love? Her voice was rich and bright, and carried just a hint of a Sathmoran accent. Please, John stammered. Oh, gods, he thought. Oh, gods, a hot redhead is coming on to me. Don't fuck this up, don't fuck this up, don't fuck this up. The woman slid into the booth beside him, increasing the contact between their auras. With great effort, John reined in his own magic, closing down his aura as much as he could, the magical equivalent of crossing his legs and wrapping his arms around his body. For her part, the woman kept her aura open, inviting contact, though she did not extend it into his personal space again. "'What's your name?' she asked. John looked down at his hands, flat on the table in front of him. John. John Tunstall. He glanced back up, and the woman smiled again. At this close proximity, it was even more dazzling. Below those emerald eyes, he could see a generous smattering of tiny freckles across her cheeks, which stood out against her pale skin. They were the same color as her coppery hair. I'm Esme, she said, reaching out and covering his hand with her own. I've been looking for you, John. Oh, gods, he thought again. Looking for me? Why? A terrifying thought struck him, and his voice dropped to a whisper. Are you with Imperial Intelligence? Esme laughed, a sensual and wicked sound. 
Oh, no, no, she said. Stars above, that would be a fine thing, wouldn't it? No, dear, I'm not with the imps. I saw you in a vision. This was not such an incredible statement to John as it would have been to most people. After all, he was apprenticed to a master wizard who saw visions of the future almost constantly. But he was still unsure whether to accept it. On the one hand, he was prone to be suspicious of older adults and their motives. Even if she spoke the truth, she might be trying to con him in some way. On the other hand... On the other hand, he told himself, how often does a woman this hot take an interest in you? Seize the day, Johnny. Yeah, he said, trying to sound as relaxed and casual as she looked. And what did you see us doing in this... vision? Esme's smile took on a lascivious cast. Well, you know prophecy. There are a lot of different paths we might take, different... Options to explore. She wrapped her lips sensuously around the word options. All I know for certain is that we meet here, we talk, and then I come back with you to your shop. Options. The word engendered a dozen delicious fantasies in John's testosterone-addled mind. The suspicious part of John's mind was rapidly ceding ground to the the seize-the-day faction. But what would the master think of the idea? John knew the old man was at least as dirty-minded as he was. He'd watched plenty of clueless college students wander into the shop as frat boys and wander out as big-breasted co-eds. But as much as the old man loved beautiful women, he arguably loved money even more. He would not want John to miss an afternoon of the holiday shopping season because he was boinking Esme in the back office. John pressed his lips together, thinking hard. I have to get back to work soon, he said, but I'll show you where the shop is. Come back at nine when we close, and I'll let you in. Deal? Esme seemed to consider it, her eyes going distant. At last, she let out a sharp exhalation, too forceful to be a sigh, and smiled again. Well, I suppose waiting a few more hours won't do any harm. You've got a deal, Mr. Tunstall. Soon thereafter, the Borsa Hut employee called his number, and John retrieved the bag with his lunch. He gestured invitingly to Esme, and the redhead followed him out of the food court. When they reached the shop, Esme let out a bark of laughter. She stopped and put her hands on her hips, taking in the sight. Well, this was... not what I expected. She shook her head, still chuckling. Oh, stars... He must hate it. Look at all that nonsense. She spread her hands, encompassing the window displays. John stopped and looked at her, surprised. You know the owner? He'd been about to say his master's name, but given the warrant out for his arrest, that wasn't a good idea. Esme's expression grew distant again, and vaguely unsettled. I did, once. As much as anyone can know him. John made an educated guess. You were his apprentice? Esme's lip twisted into something half amused and half regretful. I suppose I was. She was silent for a time, scanning over the window displays, fondness warring with grief in those brilliant green eyes. Finally, John cleared his throat. <clears> throat> I do have to open the shop again, 
he said apologetically. Did you want to come in and have a look around? The redhead shook herself, then turned her smile on John once more. No, that's all right. I wouldn't want to be a distraction. Go tend to your business and I'll be back tonight. She stepped in close to him and planted a kiss on his cheek. Don't let the shop leave without me, she said, a playful sparkle in her eyes. John blushed again and smiled back. I won't, he promised. For the rest of the day, John could barely keep his mind on his work. His thoughts kept returning to Esme and his fantasies for the night to come. He thought about going upstairs to tell the old man about Esme's arrival, but surely he must have already foreseen it. Maybe that was why he'd seemed so distracted this morning. From their brief conversation, John had guessed that the two hadn't parted on the best of terms. John left his master to his privacy. He had no doubt that if the old man wished to discuss the matter, he would show himself. At five minutes to nine, a knock came on the door of the shop. John looked up and saw Esme peering in around one of the window displays. He smiled and waved her in, but she shook her head and pointed to the door. Puzzled, John came out from behind the counter and pushed it open for her. Hey, what's... he began, sticking his head out to look at her. Esme grabbed his head in both hands and drew him into a passionate kiss. All John's higher brain functions ceased as the beautiful redhead drew him outside and pressed him up against the display window. Her lithe, supple body pressed against him from chest to groin, and he felt himself growing instantly hard. His arms snaked around her body of their own accord, grabbing hold of her shapely ass and holding her tight. Gods, how he wanted this woman. After a kiss that seemed to go on for minutes, Esme finally came up for air. She moved her mouth to his ear and said, in a husky voice, Hello again, lovely. Were you a good boy? Did all your work before you play? Yes, ma'am, John gasped. Esme nibbled on his earlobe. Good. I've been looking forward to this for hours. She grabbed his hair at the back of his head and pulled, exposing his throat. She traced a line of kisses and love bites down the exposed flesh, driving John wild with desire. He started kissing every bit of her exposed skin that he could reach, while his hands roamed over the curves of her body. As he did so, John's aura reached out as well. It wasn't something he directed consciously, but a subconscious reaction to his desire— John wanted to feel every part of Esme with every one of his senses, and that included the arcane. Her aura was wide open to him, inviting, and his own aura wrapped around her like a blanket, enveloping her magic with his own. As soon as this magical encirclement was completed, Esme started moving him again. She tugged him toward the door to the shop, and he followed willingly. She spun him around again so his back fetched up against the door, and it took him a moment of awkward fumbling to get it open. The bells hanging from the door jangled loudly as they tumbled inside. Esme broke off the kiss and cast a quick look around the shop. A triumphant grin broke across her face, and she squealed in delight. "'Yes!' she cried and kissed him again. As distracted as he was, a tiny part of John's mind vaguely registered that this reaction might be important. 
What? What is it? He asked, breathlessly. Tell you later, Esme said, reaching down to tug at the front of his jeans. Back room, now. John didn't need to be told twice. They stumbled, giggling like teenagers, to the back door of the shop, then across the warehouse floor to the smaller, quieter rooms in the back. This was where the shop's break room was located, as well as a set of general-purpose rooms where the master dabbled in arcane research. The break room had a long, wooden dining table taking up much of the floor space. Esme hopped up and sat on the edge of it, which would put her at a very convenient height when John stood in front of her. She wrapped her arms around his neck and kissed him again, then traced a finger down the front of John's shirt. She poked a fingertip into the text printed there. "'Well, John?' she said playfully. "'How about you drop everything and work on my problem?' John laughed and helped Esme pull off her sweater, casting it aside." Her lovely freckles continued across her breastbone and the upper curves of her breasts. Well, you know what they say, he said, as he reached around behind her to unclasp her bra. The customer is always right. A cold, harsh voice came from directly behind him. I have never said that in my entire life. John's blood abruptly ran cold. He spun around and saw his master, the wizard Artax, glaring up at him from the break room door. He had left his hat upstairs, and his broad, high forehead shone under the fluorescent lights. His bright blue eyes were narrowed in tightly controlled anger. Master, John stammered, I didn't leave the shop untended. Everything's locked up. The master held up a hand to silence him. John let himself be silenced. Artax, he now realized, was not glaring at him, but past him. John stepped to the side, clearing the space between the old man and Esme. The redhead seemed completely untroubled by the fact that she was sitting half-naked on a table in the master's shop. She gave him a casual wave, that triumphant light shining in her eyes again. Nice word you've got there. I like how you keyed it specifically to my aura signature. It's like a hand-lettered sign saying, Keep out, Esme. Quite the personal touch. Obviously, it's still vulnerable to a jacketed aura exploit, but I guess they didn't have those in your day. Still, points for effort. Artax grunted, a sound that came out as almost a growl. When he spoke, the words were low, even, and pronounced with deliberate precision. Esmeralda Rose Freebarn, what have you done to my apprentice? Nothing, Esme said innocently. Her eyes drifted back to John, and her tongue flicked quickly over her teeth. Well, nothing yet. Master Tunstall has quite enough to worry about without you complicating his existence even further. Esme laughed once, and this time there was acid in it. Ha! <laughs> oh, yes! You're quite good at complicating people's lives all by yourself, aren't you? I have enough blame to carry for my own choices. I shan't accept blame for the choices of others. Esme spread her hands. This coincidentally put her breasts on display, which made it hard for John to focus on what she was saying. And I'm not asking you to. I'm not here to place blame. In fact, 
I'm here to say the words every parent longs to hear. She put her hands together again, lacing her fingers as if in supplication. Her face took on an expression of overwrought earnestness. I need you, mother. You're the only one who can help me. Esme and Artax stared at each other. The silence that followed was so heavy and so filled with tension that it took John five whole seconds to realize what she'd said. Wait a minute, he said. Mother? And that's the end of part one. Come back next week to hear more about Artax and Esme and their strange, strange history together. Samuel R. Delaney said, One writes a story to find out what happens in it. Before it is written, it sits in the mind like a piece of overheard gossip or a bit of intriguing tattle. The story process is like taking up such a piece of gossip, hunting down the people actually involved, questioning them, finding out what really occurred. As with gossip, you can't be too surprised if important things turn up that were left out in the first heard version entirely, or if points initially made much of turn out to have been distorted, or simply not to have happened at all. So, let's see how I'm doing at investigating that gossip. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 4,896 words this week, over the course of 6.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 783 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I've gone 74 days without breaking my chain. This week was a rough one for me personally, for reasons I won't go into. I had trouble focusing on writing The Lost in the Least, so I decided to switch gears and spend some time on another project. So this week I worked on the outline for my next Metamore City Live audio drama. It's called Rafak Aliri and the Vampire's Bargain, and I hope to perform it later this year at Baldacon 51. On the Patreon campaign, we have a new patron this week. Please welcome Bobby. A monthly pledge on Patreon is the single best way for you to support the show and help me to keep making it. For as little as a dollar a month, you can get access to monthly bonus artwork and weekly behind-the-scenes podcast episodes. Increase that to $3 a month, and you get art previews, sneak peeks, and other insider stuff. Becoming a patron is easy. All you need is a credit card or a PayPal account. Head over to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Take a look at the reward levels and make a pledge today. And now, the feedback. Rosemary posted in the fans of Metamore City Group about the end of Divide by Zero. She says, That was fabulous. I wish I could see the paths my choices would take. Although I'm not sure whether that would remove or strengthen my anxiety about making choices. Also, I'm pretty sure you need more mental processing power than I possess to carry such a thing off. Love the tricky sound stuff. Rarely do I want to get a print or ebook version of an audio story after I've listened to it, but I really want to know how you originally arranged those pieces and compare them. Great work. I'm looking forward to seeing these people in future stories. Unquote. 
Mark also chimed in about this episode. He says, I don't know if this is what you were going for, Chris, but I really dig the idea of a world where the trickster god is the only one with the balls to try to save the world from its ordained end. All the more orderly gods are all like, oh no, we can't possibly fight against the ordained order of things. And the trickster is like, screw that, let's play a trick on chaos. I guess I'll have to wait and see where things are going to find out if I'm on the right track. Unquote. Thanks, you guys. I don't think I could handle Hallie's gift either. I'd probably be one of those poor saps who went crazy by the time Klepnos had finished his lesson. Hallie and Sophie will be back, but not for a while. You can expect them to show up around the fifth book in the main story arc, The Last Prophecy. I might get some new short story ideas involving them before that, but we'll just have to wait and see. Klepnos, however, will certainly be around. A trickster god's work is never done. Hi, Chris. It's Sarah Testarossa. So I just finished the fifth part of Divide by Zero. I really like what you ended up doing with the story. I think the part that I thought was the coolest was the fact that prophecy is not limited to people in the Psy Collective who have, you know, that ability and wizards and other magic users and people who are, you know, prodded by one or more of the gods, but that anyone, literally anyone, can potentially see the potential futures if they open their mind in the right way. And I think it's cool that Kleptnos has been going around for thousands of years prodding people with this. There was a funny crack about, you know, maybe you should have tried with women sooner. <laughs> I mean, it's true. That goes along well with the fact that it's in Pyralis and, you know, women are still not quite seen as being at the same level as men there, at least in, you know, most circles, it seems. Hi, Sarah. That's a great point. And to be honest, after 10 years, I'm not sure whether I did that on purpose or not. It is true that men's and women's brains work differently on average, though, so it makes sense to me that perhaps one sex would have an easier time looking at the world in this new way than the other does. So yeah, I thought it was really cool how that's kind of the new mission for both Sophie and Hallie, and I like that they're kind of doing that together. And I thought it was interesting how Hallie's mentor ended up being a little bit, I don't know, I guess I didn't expect him to approve of her new info, but I was actually kind of pleasantly surprised that he was like, we can leave out the part about, you know, basically leaving out the part that was disproved instead of being like, no, we learned this stuff, we must stick to it, you know, publishing the information that they learned in the lab. But the fact that he was willing to take out the part that's more controversial, both more controversial in terms of the fact that they predicted it in the first place, but then she learned that it was wrong, um, I thought that was cool. As Hallie previously mentioned, Pietro's a smart guy, and he respects Hallie and her intellect, even if he's currently worried that she's worked herself into an obsessive, perfectionist neurosis. He's not going to make her put something in a paper that she's no longer willing to defend. I always like the irony of the fact that the things he's worried about at the end of the story are the very things that Hallie overcame since the beginning of the story. Namely, that she had gotten too caught up in the way her model said that the world works, so she had missed the truth about how the world really works. At the end of the story, Hallie is more connected to the world than ever, and that's the very thing that separates her from Pietro and his world. And I also thought it was neat that he didn't kind of completely write her off as crazy or anything like that. Although, 
him thinking that she needs rest might be. He might think that she has a little bit of a loss of a little bit in terms of overworking herself and then coming up with some uh, not-quite-scientific theories. The fact that she had to invent a whole kind of new math was pretty funny to do that. You laugh, but this has actually happened more than once in the history of physics. Newton discovered calculus in the process of dealing with problems of classical mechanics, and quantum mechanics requires the use of some very sophisticated and bizarre mathematics that make my head hurt just to look at them. If Halley's original model could only be understood by a handful of people, it made sense to me that she would need a similar quantum leap in mathematics once she started accounting for multiple timelines. But anyway, that's pretty much all I got, I think. But thank you again for airing this. I do really like the way that it ended up with the um, creative use of audio so that it was showing the multiple avenues. But I, I think it worked out well, the way that you did it with the audio and the showing the different branches at the same time. So cool. Anyway, you take care. Bye. Hey, Chris. I just want to say that I have finally found your podcast this weekend I think like Saturday and I started listening to it Saturday night I usually work at night and I have about eight hours uh, working time that I just listen to podcasts like all the time I'm currently on episode 25 in the middle of your metamore novel and I'm just loving every bit at the end of every episode I just can't wait to get to the next one and I find myself trying to urge you on to go faster to, to get through with whatever you're talking about, like whether it be the calls, which I still love listening to. I'll listen to the whole way through. Um, your talks with Nobilis <laughs> throughout the whole novel, just very funny and engaging for me. And all, all of the promos and the back and forth that you have with, the, with different podcasters and all your stories about whenever you go to the con and everything like that. Right now, you currently got a job in California as a science teacher at a charter school. And you give us updates on your life so far. And I think it'd be very funny like to see where you are in 2016 as I see your podcast dropped off and then it picked up again. So I can't wait to see like what has happened when I reach that point. Uh, hopefully, at this pace, I'll get to it, what, in like a week or so? Uh, who knows? But yeah, I love what you're doing. You can take your time because it, it'll take me a little bit to get there to the end so far. But I'm just listening, listening, listening. Thank you so much. Bye. Hey, thanks, man. I'm so glad you found the show. And whenever you get around to hearing this episode, thanks for sticking with it. I hope you've enjoyed The Raven and the Writing Desk as much as you enjoyed the original Metamore City podcast. Call me back when you get a chance, and tell me what you thought of the new stories. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your comments in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on iTunes. It makes a big difference in helping people find the podcast. 
That's all for this week. Come back next time for more fiction fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2016 and 2017 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.